Well, I want to invite you to turn to uh, Matthew's Gospel. We're going to be thinking this evening in this uh, series, Controversial Jesus. We're going to be thinking um, about this commandment that Jesus gives to love our enemies. And so we're going to read from Matthew chapter 5, verse 43, down to the end of the chapter. Jesus said, You have heard that it was said, You shall love your neighbor and hate your enemy. But I say to you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you, so that you may be sons of your Father who is in heaven. For he makes his sun rise on the evil and on the good, and sends rain on the just and on the unjust. For if you love those who love you, what reward do you have? Do not even the tax collectors do the same? And if you greet only your brothers, What more are you doing than others? Do not even the Gentiles do the same? You, therefore, must be perfect, as your heavenly Father is perfect. Quite a demanding standard. A number of uh, years ago, well, obviously, um, 2001, uh, this guy came very much to the fore. This is Osama bin Laden. And uh, any of you who are old enough to remember, have any conscious memories of the 9th of September in 2001, probably remember what you were doing and where you were when the news broke of the airplanes that flew into the Twin Towers in New York. Not very long after the incident of 9-11, Uh, I was having dinner, we were living in Switzerland at the time, and uh, we were having dinner with a couple of friends. Um, They'd invited, uh, they weren't believers, and they'd invited another uh, friend to come and uh, meet us at that dinner. They thought that we'd be interested to meet this guy. Uh, He was a a Jewish guy um, who taught in in an institute that explored issues of international relations. So people, this is Geneva, people who want to study international relations, diplomacy and so on, they went to the school and uh, he was part of the, the teaching faculty there. He'd had a bit of an interest in Christianity down through the years. In fact, uh, he, was, uh, he used to know Francis Schaeffer. Again, some of you who are a little bit older will remember the name Francis Schaeffer. If you're younger, uh, that's probably something from, from history that's, that's passed you by. Uh, but he talked about how he used to go and spend time with Francis Schaeffer in the Labrie Christian Center that Schaeffer had set up in the Swiss Alps. He enjoyed debating with Schaeffer and regretted that once Francis Schaeffer was no longer there, there didn't, in his opinion, there didn't seem to be people uh, to have adequate intellectual discussions with about Christianity. We got to talking, uh, he's, he's, he's an American Jew, and uh, we got to talking inevitably about 9-11 and what needed to be done and the implications and so on and so on. And he said something very interesting, which I suppose at the time I really ought to have taken rather more seriously as a challenge. He said that if he knew a Christian church that was prepared to advertise the following topic as a sermon topic, he would turn up on Sunday to worship. The topic, I've forgotten the exact words, but the topic was something on these lines. I love Osama bin Laden. Do you see, that fellow knew what we profess to believe as Christians. 
And he's looking at, admittedly, a terribly difficult situation, and he's saying, if there's somebody who's prepared to talk about that and demonstrate to me that they take seriously that teaching of Jesus, I'll be there to listen. Now, of course, that is an extreme example. I must confess, I didn't rise to the challenge. I didn't really, I must confess to my shame, I didn't really think of rising to the challenge. I probably should have given it much more serious thought. But it's a rather extreme example, and of course it raises lots of other questions, doesn't it? It raises questions like, for example, if you had been dispatched as part of the military operation to assassinate Osama bin Laden, if you were a Christian, should you have loved Osama bin Laden to the point of not pulling the trigger to, to shoot him? If loving Osama bin Laden was to mean that you kind of let him off the hook somehow, would that have been loving to his victims on 9-11? Would it have been loving to other people who could potentially have uh, suffered the longer he lived and the longer he commanded his operations? And it gets us into big issues of justice, of war, of pacifism. I mean, if we love our enemies, should we be in the army? It gets us into all of these kind of questions huge questions and lots of implications and probably things that go beyond what, uh, what we would have time uh, and, and maybe even I would have the ability to adequately deal with here this evening. By the way, just on that, if you're interested in exploring that whole issue a little bit or a little bit uh, further, I recommend this book by Don Carson. Actually, my story about Osama bin Laden made it into this book because he was visiting us not very long afterwards and I told him the story and included it in this book the challenge of loving in hard places. And he talks in much more detail about some of these complex issues. And of course, for, for many of us, our issue is not really whether as followers of Jesus we love Osama bin Laden or people like him. Our struggles have probably far fewer global implications. For some of us, our struggle with, with some of this is more along the lines of well, I've got a neighbor who's engaging in antisocial behavior. You know, playing music after 11 o'clock on a Saturday night or parking their car across my driveway. That kind of thing, many of us are grappling more on that level. Or maybe some of us are grappling with the kind of issue where we work with a boss who knows uh, the stance that we take as, as believers, who's very hostile to it, and we find, frankly, we're treated unfairly, unkindly, unjustly, by this boss. What does it mean to take Jesus seriously in loving people in situations like that? And of course, somewhere between those two, uh, there are a whole, there's a whole range of, of other issues, not least in this particular part of the world that we live in. I think we're living at times that are uh, marked by increasingly by polarization. Uh, there is severe an angry division uh, over issues of identity, over issues of politics. Uh, over the past little while, probably some of us have discovered the word themons. Never knew it was, all, it was spelt as all one word, but there you go. Themons, the other lot. Or the expression, whataboutery. That's a fairly new one to me. It's only in the past year or two that I've come across that. And the name-calling that happens around issues like Brexit, whether you're a Ramoner, as some people call it, or whether you're a knuckle-dragging uh, racist who voted for Brexit, you know, that, those kind of terms that, that, that get tossed about. 
issues on a more global scale, like, for example, how, and you can take your pick of these two, how could an American Christian ever possibly contemplate voting for Donald Trump? Or the alternative, how could an American Christian ever seriously contemplate not voting for Donald Trump? And we live in a world where there is increased polarization and increased bitterness. What does it mean to love, if not our enemies, well, at least that other crowd of people that we really don't like and that we're quite hostile to and they're quite hostile to us? Now, Jesus clearly taught that his followers would not always be popular. That's an understatement, isn't it? We've dipped in partway into the Sermon on the Mount, and if you read uh, back a little bit in the Sermon on the Mount, you realize in, in what we've come to know as the Beatitudes that Jesus had already welcomed and affirmed those who were persecuted for the sake of righteousness. He talked about those who would be reviled and who would be slandered for the sake of his name. And he says to his followers, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you. Now, I want to set a little bit of context here in terms of uh, Jesus' teaching, um, because he's not just randomly coming to this. You'll notice that he begins by saying, you've heard that it was said. <clears throat> and that's actually um, one of a number of statements that begin in either the same way or in, in a very similar way. Uh, that go all the way back to chapter 5 and verse 21. And immediately before that, in verse 20, he says this, I tell you, unless your righteousness exceeds that of the scribes and the Pharisees, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. He's talking about a, a very high standard or a deep standard, maybe is what it was a, a better way of thinking of it, a very deep standard of righteousness. And in order to illustrate it and to give specifics to this call to righteous living, he talks about ways in which his listeners have been taught things. So over and over he says, you have heard that it was said, or it has been said, and so on and so on. He talks about murder. You've heard that it was said, you shall not kill. Um, you, sh you shall not murder. Verse 21, you've heard that it was said to those of old, you shall not murder, and whoever murders will be liable to judgment. And he goes on and says, but I say to you that everyone who's angry with his brother will be liable to judgment. Whoever insults his brother will be liable to the council, and whoever says you fool will be liable to the hell of fire. And what you see Jesus doing there, he's saying the physical act of murder is not the point. It's the attitude that's in our heart. Same thing with the second example where he talks about adultery. And again, he makes the point that the issue is not the act of adultery, it is the heart attitude that leads to adultery, that precedes adultery. And then he goes on and talks about divorce. And there he challenges the casual attitude that some of his contemporaries seem to have that's really just, just ready to just toss a marriage away, and not only to toss a marriage away, but to do so with apparently the support of a biblical text that they quote. He talks about oaths, and he says basically, be a person of your word. Don't be someone who needs to couch your promises and your commitments in all kinds of language, which may appear that you're reinforcing your commitment to do what you say you're going to do, but in actual fact, you're really just providing yourself with a loophole further down the road. Be a person of your word. 
And he talks about retaliation and talks about the idea of non-resistance, turning the other cheek, and about going the extra mile. Now, there's something that you need to notice that's happening here. The religious tradition that had been handed down had led to people who would take the restrictions of the law and they would try to make those restrictions as narrow as possible. In other words, you can ignore the attitudes of people's hearts well, as long as they don't do certain things. So they restricted the restrictions. But they took the permissions of the law and they made them as permissible or as permissive as they possibly could. So, for example, the law that talks about divorce, where Moses says, well, if you're going to divorce, here's what you're going to, here's what you're going to do. And they said, oh, look at this. We can go out and divorce. And they took those permissions and they took them far wider than they were ever intended. And so what Jesus is doing as he introduces this subject of loving our enemies and praying for those who persecute us, it's part of him calling us to a much deeper and a much wider expression of righteous living. And that's the wider context then in which he talks about this, by challenging this teaching that we should love our neighbor and hate our enemies. Now, you need to realize that that's not what the Scripture had actually said. If you go right back to Leviticus chapter 19 and verses 17 to 18, here's what the law of Moses said. You shall not hate your brother in your heart, but you shall reason frankly with your neighbor, lest you incur sin because of him. You shall not take vengeance or bear a grudge against the sons of your own people, but you shall love your neighbor as yourself. I am the Lord. <clears throat> and when you see that in its proper context, you realize that if anything, that particular law was given not to encourage people to hate their enemies, but it was given in order to prevent neighbors from becoming enemies. So he says, do not hate your brother in your heart, but reason frankly with your neighbor. I mean, how difficult do we find that? We bear grudges, we nurse grudges, uh, we hold on to resentments, we have critical attitudes towards one another, instead of sitting down and having a frank conversation with somebody and trying to resolve it. And in, 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 in urging us away from that, the law says, don't nurse a grudge, but Love your neighbor as yourself. I am the Lord. Don't commit, don't, don't uh, nurse grudges. Commit to honest and loving relationships. And of course, as you, as you probably know, that statement of loving your neighbor as yourself goes on to become part of the two-part summary of the law. Love God with everything that you have. Love your neighbor as yourself. And if you really do those things, well, you're not going to fall into any trouble with any of the commandments. But it raises a question, doesn't it? And some people who like to find ways out of their obligations like to ask these kind of questions. They can say, well, that's okay. You shall love your neighbor as yourself, but, well, who exactly is my neighbor? I mean, I can't love everybody, can I? So who exactly is my neighbor? Because if you can tell me who my neighbor is, then I know who my neighbor isn't. And if I know who my neighbor isn't, well, then I know that I don't need to worry too much about them. I'll just love my neighbors. And I'll not worry about everybody else. And of course, as you realize, that's the question that led Jesus to tell the story of the Good Samaritan, where the ruler says, well, okay, well, who's my neighbor then? If that's what I've got to do, if I've got to love my neighbor, who is my neighbor? And Jesus tells the story 
where the hero of the story is actually somebody that none of the Jews would really have wanted to regard as a neighbor, and yet he becomes the hero. He becomes a neighbor to the man who's been beaten up. And as you look at that story, you realize what Jesus is saying and what the story is saying is that it's an awful lot easier to talk about theology than it is to love people. It's an awful lot easier to follow religious rules than it is to love people. And it's an awful lot easier to walk on by than it is to love people. All of that is in that story of, of, the, of the Good Samaritan. But back to this question. If I don't actually have to love everyone, if I only have to love my neighbor, well, presumably that means then that there are some groups of people that I can actually hit. There's nothing in the Bible tells me I don't have to, uh, that I have to love them, so presumably I can hit them because there's nothing in the Bible that tells me I, that I can't hit them. My enemies, why can't I hit them? They probably hit me. And if they're not my neighbors, well, the Bible doesn't tell me to love them, so I can probably hit them as well. Now, let me just say something here. Because I think there's an example in this of a trap that we can still fall into very easily. And what I mean is, here's an, a narrow understanding and a narrow application of a part of a verse that's used to justify prejudice. So I can say, well, there's a certain group of people and I hate them. And you can say, well, hang on a minute, you shouldn't really hate them. Well, it's okay, the Bible allows me to hate them. What do you mean the Bible allows to hate me, you to hate them? Well, it says you love your neighbor as yourself, and they're not my neighbors, so I have no obligation to them. That's the kind of thing that was happening. But I think we can still do that, can't we? We maybe have individuals, individual uh, people, or maybe groups of people <clears throat> that we don't like. And instead of examining our hearts, and the reason for our motivations, and maybe the prejudices that we have, sometimes what we do is we take a little bit of a verse out of its context, and we use that with a distorted application to dress up our prejudice and to justify ourselves in holding it. I think we can be as guilty of the same thing that some of these people were guilty of around Jesus. They'd taken a little bit of a verse and they'd said, well, this is going to let us off the hook somewhere else. It's actually going to justify some of the prejudices that we have. And Jesus challenges, with that, challenges us with that. He says, no, this goes far wider than you're comfortable with because you're to love your enemies and you're to pray even for those who persecute you. And he points then to the extensive love of the Father. You notice uh, then as, as he goes on into verse 45, he says, as you do this, you'll be sons and daughters of your Father who is in heaven. <clears throat> For he makes his sun rise on the evil and on the good, and he sends rain on the just and on the unjust. He's describing the love of God in the sense in which it spills over into the lives of all kinds of people, good people, bad people, just people, unjust people, in expressions of what we would probably call common grace. So the sun rises on the evil and the good. 
If the sun's shining on your picnic, it doesn't mean that you're necessarily, uh, you know, more loved than somebody else who's got the rain falling on, on their picnic. You can have wicked people who get the sunshine on, the pic on their picnic, or the sun shines at harvest time on a wicked farmer. The rain falls at harvest time, or, or, or at sowing time when, uh, for a, a farmer who's, who's, who needs the rain to, cult to cultivate what's been sown in the ground. God's love is not restricted in that sense. And of course, in the Old Testament, when you think of some of the stories in the Old Testament, you realize that God's love spills over beyond the boundaries of His own people. Of course, He has His own particular people for His purpose, but yet His love is not limited to them. It spills over beyond them. Think about the story of Jonah, for example. Jonah and the city of Nineveh. And what's happening in that story is God is demonstrating compassion on the Ninevites, the Assyrians. And as you think about that story and you remember the detail of it, you realize that it caused a major problem for Jonah. Now, what we know about Jonah from other parts of the Old Testament is that Jonah was probably a Jewish nationalist. What he really enjoyed doing as a prophet, his favorite bit of the prophetic job, was to, to utter prophecies about the expansion of Israel's borders. That was when he was in his element. At the time of Jonah's life, the Assyrians were a thorn in the flesh. Eventually, they'd become much more than that to the Israelites. But God then says to Jonah, Jonah, I want you to go and I want you to preach to the Assyrians of Nineveh. Now, there was a sense in which that might have been okay. Because God's message to the people in Nineveh was, in just a few weeks' time, you're going to be destroyed. Now, I think Jonah would have enjoyed that. He would have enjoyed that part of the message. But Jonah was a thinker, and Jonah knew something about God. He knew that God was compassionate, God was merciful, and Jonah's deepest fear was that the compassion of God would go beyond the people of God, and that Jonah would find himself as an agent of God's compassion, because he says, well, if I go down to Nineveh and I preach this message, do you know what's going to happen? These guys are actually going to believe it, and they're going to repent, and I know if they repent, because God is a merciful God, he's going to have mercy and he's going to have compassion on them, so he runs the other way, and you know that whole story. He runs the other way, and he's caught by the fish, and, and so on, uh, and eventually he's spewed up, and eventually he goes to Nineveh, and sure enough, the people repent, and as Jonah sits there under his little tree, waiting for judgment to fall, and stewing with resentment because God has been kind to these people, God says, what's wrong with you? You're more worried about your tree than you are about these Assyrians. And Jonah could have said, and could have, he could have thought, well, I, I, I thought that we were your people, and that the Assyrians, they were themans, and that, well, I didn't really want your mercy to extend that far. Yet God's mercy extends. I've been thinking quite a lot recently about some of the stories around the exile in the Old Testament, where the Jews are taken away from Jerusalem. They're taken hundreds of miles away to Babylon in captivity. And that's the setting for Psalm 137. Uh, Richard and I are both old enough to remember when by the rivers of Babylon was all the rage. Uh, it was actually a song It was written in 1972. It was originally written to be part of the soundtrack for a Jamaican movie. It was originally banned by the Jamaican government. 
because of the Rastafarian roots to the song uh, and the sort of rebellious connotations because Babylon, if you're singing it in Jamaica, well, Babylon is the Jamaican police and Zion is Ethiopia. And so to sing that in Jamaica was frowned on and the government banned it when it was first written until somebody said to them, well, you actually know that that's taken from the Bible, don't you? So you can't actually ban something that's taken from the Bible. And so they had to unban it and it became a, a, great, a great hit. But in that psalm, you have people saying, and we sat by the rivers of Babylon in exile. We sat and we wept when we remembered Zion. And our captors tortured us. They said, you've got songs, haven't you, in Jerusalem? You sing a lot of songs in Jerusalem and a lot of songs about Jerusalem. Go and sing us some of those songs. And they said, how can we sing the Lord's song in a strange land? And they come to the end of that psalm and they basically say, blessed is the man who beats the heads of Babylonian children off the street. That's the violence and the passion of that psalm. That's what exile meant. They must have hated the Babylonians. And then when you read in Jeremiah chapter 29, we've all got our favorite verse from Jeremiah. I know the plans that I have for you, plans to prosper you and so on. It comes in the context of a letter that was written to the exiles. And the exiles had thought at first, some of the false prophets had said to them, look, you're, this, this is never going to happen. Jerusalem's never going to fall. And then when Jerusalem did fall, they said, well, it's only going to be a year or two and then we'll be back. And then Jeremiah writes a letter and he says, here's what God's saying. He says, you're going to settle down in Babylon because you're going to be here for a while, 70 years. And he says, you are to seek the welfare of the city of Babylon. Seek for the shalom of the city of Babylon and pray for Babylon's prosperity. Now, I dare say that if you were a Jewish exile from Jerusalem in Babylon, you would have found it an awful lot easier to pray Psalm 137 than you would have done to pray for the welfare of the city of Babylon. And I think even there in the Old Testament, you've got these examples of this challenge of what it meant for the people of God to love their enemies, to pray for their persecutors. There it was. Give you one other example. It comes from earlier in the history of Israel. And it's the story of a little girl from Israel who's taken captive. She's taken captive to Syria, <clears throat> where she becomes a servant in the household of a man called Naaman, who's a military officer. Naaman has leprosy. Now, you put yourself in the situation of this Jewish girl. You've been ripped away from your home. You are in the home of a man whose military is your enemy, who's caused you personal suffering. He's got leprosy. How many of us, our instinct would be to say, well, he's got it coming to him. And she says, oh, I really wish that my master could go and meet the prophet in Israel because there he'd find hope. Love your enemies. Pray for those who persecute you. And yet, we find it hard not only to love our enemies, but we find it hard sometimes to, to love those people who go beyond our own demons. And Jesus calls us to demonstrate love that goes beyond just our own people. He says, 
what's the big deal if you love people who love you in return? Well, what's remarkable about that? Look around in, in the society. You see it all the time. He talks about the tax collectors, even the tax collectors who were regarded as morally at the bottom of the pile. Well, they like their friends, don't they? So if you just like your friends, what's remarkable about that? He says, what credit is it in greeting the people, only the people, who greet you? Anyone can do that. And Jesus says, what you're called to as my disciples, as children of your heavenly Father, who shows mercy to all, who's shown mercy to you, what you're called to do is to reflect his love that is a different kind of love from the kind of love that everybody else demonstrates. You've got to go beyond just loving the people who love you and greeting the people who greet you and just liking the people who like you and the people who are like you. And one of the things that when people talk about uh, church growth and so on, one of the things that people talk about is what's called the homogenous unit principle. It sounds very complicated. Basically what it means is that uh, people who are like one another tend to like to stay together with one another. And a missionary called Donald, Donald McGavern, quite a number of years ago, Donald McGavern had been a missionary in India, and, and he developed this, this idea and, and, and suggested that, you know, if we're calling people to convert to Christ, it's an awful lot easier if we don't put all kinds of barriers in, in front of them. You know, they, they can convert to Christ, but they, they don't have to change race. They don't have to change color, obviously. They can't. They don't have to learn a new language. They don't have to make such dramatic cultural uh, changes. They can still stay part of their group. And groups can convert much more easily together. And that's been translated over into, into how churches grow in the West. And you think about it. How many, let's say, working class Protestants living in an estate in Belfast would find themselves comfortable and at ease in a Nigerian Pentecostal church? How many of you would find yourselves comfortable in a Nigerian Pentecostal church? You know, it can be much more comfortable in a church just to be surrounded with people who are like you. Same kind of background, same kind of social class, same education level, same interests, etc., etc., etc. Jesus is calling us to a love that goes beyond that. It's hard work. It's challenging. And yet that's what reflects the love of God, and that is our challenge. And I think it's at the cross where we see this comes together, isn't it? The cross where Jesus prays, Father, forgive them, for they do not know what they're doing. Jesus isn't asking us to do something that he himself has not done. Father, forgive them, for they do not know what they're doing. And it's at the cross, through the work of Jesus, that People who are very different can find reconciliation. People from different cultures, people from different races, people who speak different languages can find reconciliation. Themans and usans can find reconciliation. Even enemies can find reconciliation. Some of you probably know the, the story of Cory Ten Boom. <laughs> Um, probably a number of stories about Corrie ten Boom. 
Corrie ten Boom was a, a Dutch lady who was arrested by the Nazis along with the rest of her family for hiding Jews in the city of Harlem in the Netherlands during the Holocaust. She was eventually sent along with her sister Betsy to the concentration camp at Ravensbrück. Betsy didn't survive it. Corrie ten Boom did survive it. And she went on to travel widely and talk about the forgiveness of God. Two years after the end of the Second World War, she came to face to face with one of the former guards in Ravensbrück prison. She was speaking at a church in Munich. And if you know much about the history of the Second World War and Nazism and Hitler and so on, you know that that was a, that was a place where Hitler got started, in Munich. She'd been speaking in this church about God's forgiveness, and she told her audience that when people, for, people confess their sins, God casts them into the deepest ocean and they're gone forever. And at the end of the meeting, people had kind of drifted off. Most people were leaving silently, as you could imagine they would, given the context. This man came walking towards her. And when she saw him, she recognized him. And her mind went straight back to the concentration camp and to, and to Betsy, her sister. And this is the story in her words. Now he was in front of me, hand thrust out. A fine message, Fräulein. How good it is to know that, as you say, all our sins are at the bottom of the sea. And I, who had spoken so glibly of forgiveness, fumbled in my pocketbook rather than take that hand. He would not remember me, of course. How could he remember one prisoner among those thousands of women? But I remembered him and the leather crop swinging from his belt. I was face to face with one of my captors and my blood seemed to freeze. You mentioned Ravensbrook in your talk, he was saying. I was a guard there. No, he didn't remember me. But since that time, he went on, I've become a Christian. I know that God has forgiven me for the cruel things I did there, but I'd like to hear it from your lips as well, Fräulein. Again, the hand came out, will you forgive me? And I stood there. I, whose sins had again and again to be forgiven. I could not forgive. Betsy had died in that place. Could he erase her slow, terrible death simply for the asking? It could not have been many seconds that he stood there, hand held out. But to me it seemed hours as I wrestled with the most difficult thing I had ever had to do. For I had to do it. I knew that. The message that God forgives us has a prior condition, that we forgive those who have injured us. If you do not forgive men their trespasses, Jesus said, neither will your Father in heaven forgive your trespasses. I knew it not only as a commandment of God, but as a daily experience. Since the end of the war, I, I had had a home in Holland for victims of Nazi brutality. Those who were able to forgive their former enemies were able also to return to the outside world and rebuild their lives, no matter what the physical scars. Those who nursed their bitterness remained invalids. It was as simple and as horrible as that. And still I stood there with a the coldness clutching my heart. But forgiveness is not an emotion. I knew that too. Forgiveness is an act of the will. And the will can function regardless of the temperature of the heart. Help, I prayed silently. 
I can lift my hand, I can do that much. You supply the feeling. And so woodenly, mechanically, I thrust my hand into the one stretched out to me. And as I did, an incredible thing took place. The current started in my shoulder, raced down my arm, sprang into our joint hands, and then this healing warmth seemed to flood my whole being, bringing tears to my eyes. I forgive you, brother, I cried with all my heart. For a long moment, we grasped each other's hands, the former guard and the former prisoner. I'd never known God's love so intensely as I did then. Let me ask you as we finish. Have you got any enemies? If it's a bit strong and you wouldn't want to quite apply that word, have you, have you got individuals in your life that you really don't like? Maybe for good reason, because of what they've done? Maybe it is more severe. Maybe you do have enemies. People who persistently and consistently treat you badly. Maybe it's not so much an individual. Maybe it's a group of people. Maybe some of you, given the history of this city, have very painful, dark, and deep memories. Have you got enemies? Jesus says, I say to you, love your enemies. Pray for those who persecute you. We're people of the cross, aren't we? We follow a crucified Jesus, a crucified and risen Jesus, but a Jesus who went to the cross. And surely that needs to dominate how we relate to one another. It needs to dominate how we relate to others who are not like us. As we think of the mercy that has been extended to us, that God wants to overflow from us into the lives of other people. As we live in a changing culture, and maybe as the church, we're going to experience more hostility, increasing hostility, in the years that are ahead of us. It's going to be very tough. It's going to be very tempting to resort to bits of Bible verses and say, well, Jesus said we're to love one another. Well, he did. But he also said we're to love our enemies. It doesn't mean that we give up our principles or we give up our beliefs or anything like that. But what's it going to mean for us to live as people who are debtors to God's mercy? People who have found mercy at the cross. And who know that every other human being needs that same mercy. <laughs> And maybe God wants us to be the agents that reach out to them. It may even be somebody that you've just not spoken to for five years or ten years or something like that because of something they said to you. And you wouldn't want to call them an enemy, but it fits in there somewhere, doesn't it? Love your enemies, says Jesus. Pray for those who persecute you. Because in doing this, 
you will be children of your Father.